appreciate you being here and worshiping with us. Thanks to those of you online. Um, uh, just, a, just, a, just a little trivia here. The song we just sang at the very end, I'd Rather Have Jesus, was written in 1922, over 100 years old, and it's still our prayer uh, this morning. So I, I think some of the times those old hymns really speak to us, uh, even after they've been written a long time ago. If you remember last week, we were in our study of Mark, and we looked at verses 17 through 22. In these six verses, we were able to witness some of Jesus' teaching and encouragement to a rich, young ruler. Jesus, if you remember, is continuing on his uh, uh, journey toward uh, Jerusalem uh, to be the betrayed, to be mocked, to be killed. And on his way there, he is traveling toward Jerusalem. After leaving the children, a man comes up to him seeking answers to questions that he had, this rich young ruler that he had, about righteousness and eternal life. And one author said this, There is something amazing in the sight of this story that this rich young ruler falls at the feet of the penniless prophet from Nazareth who was on his way to be tried, convicted, and condemned as a criminal. Needless to say, it was a bold move from this rich young ruler to come and fall at Jesus' feet. And he starts his questions with a label for Jesus. He says, good teacher. And Jesus stops him. And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now follow this from Jesus. How could I, Jesus, be good if only God is good? And so Jesus says, if you call me good, then you must be prepared to also call me God. And so Christ always challenges us to our true belief in who he is. And this man wanted to know something. He wanted to know what he could do to inherit eternal life. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we looked at last week, there's no behavior that can obtain an inheritance. Jesus gives him instruction to keep the law, basically the last six of the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler's response is, Teacher, I've done all these things since my youth. And the verb he uses is not only is it a past tense that I have done, but I continue to do those things. Meaning that I'm a good guy. I follow the religious rules. So here's the question that we considered last week. If this man had kept all these things since his youth, and is continuing to teach, uh, keep these commandments, why was there a desire in him to run and ask Jesus for eternal life? Because the righteousness on the outside of the good things that we think we can do does not settle the righteousness that Jesus can provide on the inside. And somehow he knew that all his goodness still didn't make him righteous, or a recipient of eternal life. And Jesus, it says, looked at him with love and gives him these commandments, and then he says, one thing you lack, go sell all your possessions and come follow me. At first it seems harsh, it seems out of place, but Jesus was getting to the obstacle in this man's life, the stumbling block of his surrender. And it's important that we understand that this man, this rich young ruler, this law-abiding good guy, respected Jesus. But that was not enough to fulfill his pursuit of righteousness and eternal life. 
Now, I want us to understand this scene because this morning's passage is a continuation of a conversation of Jesus and his disciples about this uh, relationship that Jesus was trying to have with the rich young ruler. Last week, we looked at two points, a desire for obtaining righteousness in verses 17 through 20, and then Jesus' demands for righteousness in verses 21 through 22. Now, this morning, if you... um, Remember anything, remember this. It's Jesus' words. With people, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now let me just say this too. This is not a statement that is designed for us to get what we want when we want it from God. Like genies in a bottle type thing from God. Like there's this blank check we have, or we can't pay for it, then we'll just get God to kind of cover it for us. This statement is in context and in reference to salvation. With people, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And so this morning, we're going to look at these last two points in verses 23 through 31. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we do thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity you give us to come to set aside a time and a place that you've provided us a space to be together, to rehearse your truth through song, to be encouraged by each other. And now, God, we come and we open your word and we ask that you teach us by your spirit in all truth and all wisdom and knowledge, but not just a wisdom and a knowledge that sits in our head, but that desires in us a response. And so, God, this morning as we open your word, may your spirit teach us not only the truth, but how to apply this truth. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning? Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verses 23 through 27. And the first point we're going to look at is this. It's the pull of possessions. The pull of possessions. Verse 23 says this. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This very wealthy young ruler has heard Jesus' direction to sell everything you have and give to the poor, then come follow me. And then Mark's gospel records this response in verse 22. At this the man's face fell, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This man is moving away from Jesus, from the disciples. Remember, Jesus loved him. And he's watching him go. 
And this exchange, this interaction, this response of the rich young ruler gives us a key principle this morning. And the key principle is this. Our attitude towards God directly affects our attitudes towards money and possessions. Let me say that again. Our attitude towards God directly affects our attitudes towards money and possessions. Remember what Matthew 6.21 says. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, if I'm there in this scene, I can almost hear and see Jesus' sigh of sorrow as this man turns and leaves. And then it says, Jesus, looking around, sees his disciples, sees some other people. He says to his disciples, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Now, this rich young ruler had refused Jesus' challenge, and he walked away sorrowfully. He, he was sad. Now, something I want us to think about and just kind of hold on and maybe put it in the back of our minds, maybe on the back burner for a second, is this. The word for money in the New Testament is the word chromata, which is defined as all those things of which the value is measured by coinage, currency, or a price. Now, hold on to that. Now, let me ask you this. Do you find it interesting, the reaction and the response of the disciples to Jesus' statements? Do you ever wonder why they're so astonished? Twice their amazement is stressed. First in verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. And then again in 26, it says they were even more astonished. Why were they so amazed at this teaching? Why were Jesus' words so astonishing? Well, part of the reason of their, of their amazement was that Jesus, once again, was turning accepted Jewish standards up on its end showing the value of following Jesus was not based on chromata, a price, a coinage, a currency, something that could be bought or achieved. The value was way beyond that. Now, keep in context this thought. The popular belief of the Jewish people was that Jewish goodness and blessing was really simple. They believed that prosperity was the sign of a good man. Good works and riches went hand in hand. And just as the same is true in bad works and poverty or being poor went hand in hand. Now, if a rich man, if a man was rich, God must have honored and blessed that man. If a man was poor, they must have dishonored God. Wealth was a proof of excellent of character and favor with God. Riches and prosperity were commonly seen as God's blessing. Remember Job? Job chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all men of the east. Blameless and upfearing, lots of wealth. When he was wealthy, his friends saw him as righteous, but when he had a turn in his fortune and lost his family, his wealth, his health, 
his friend concluded wrongly that he must have sinned and done something against God. Job 8, 5 and 6. They said to him, But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore to you all your prosperous state. So do you see the connection? The psalmist sums it up this way in Psalm 37, 25. I have been young and now I am old. Some of you can connect with that part of the verse. <laughs> Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread. No wonder the disciples in their context and their understanding of the Jewish traditions were surprised. Wealth equaled blessing from God because of honoring God. They would have argued that a more prosperous people the more certain they were into the entry in the kingdom of God. So Jesus repeated how hard it is for wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. This is why the disciples were amazed. Now, let me just make a disclaimer. Jesus is not saying that if you have money, you can't or are not going to heaven, or that you are sinful. I've met many people that had lots of money, that love God with all their heart, and they trust God, you know, Christ alone for their salvation. Just as a side note, I've also met a lot of people who didn't have money and that were angry at God and were bitter and refused to trust Christ as their, alone for their salvation. Jesus is telling the disciples about the dangers of money and the potential harm of the pursuit of riches. It's not necessarily the money. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 Timothy 6.10. The pursuit, the pull, is what Jesus is addressing. The pursuit of money gets us headed down the wrong road in our minds and our time and our energy. But don't get me wrong, it's nice to have money. Money allows you to buy things, things you need. It allows you to bless other people. But there's a danger in allowing the ease of money to interfere with the pursuit of Christ. And I've seen that in my own life. The elders have seen it in uh, the church life seen it in missionaries' lives, that when there is plentiful, the dependency wanes. And when there is need, the dependency increases. And that inconsistency could be pointing to what Jesus is talking about here when he says, that's where your treasure is. Christ came so that our dependency would always be on him and him alone. The evil one, the enemy, wants us to think that we can be self-sufficient and that our possessions will do that for us. And let me just say this. If you think about it, no one ever saw the dangers of prosperity and material things more clearly than Jesus did. So the dangers of pursuing prosperity could be this. Maybe you can relate to these. Material possessions 
tend to fix our hearts to this world. We have so large a stake in it, so great an interest in it, that it is difficult for us to think beyond it. There's a story of a man who was once shown around a famous castle and its beautiful grounds and its landscaping. And after he had seen it all, he turned to his friends and said, These are the things that make, make it difficult to die. And I think about Hilton Head Island. It's great. It's beautiful. It's blessed to be able to see what we see. But sometimes the place we live and the things we have can lead us to pursue more of it and fix our focus on this world and the interest of this world. And as a believer, we need to be reminded this world is not our home. And many times our possessions can take precedent or even priority of our lives rather than the things of God. If we're not careful, we can subtly begin to look at life through a lens of right here and now rather than the heavenly not yet lens. The second reason is if our main interest is in material possessions or worldly things, it tends to make us think of everything in terms of price. How many of you remember the the old Ann Landers columns and papers? If you're scared to show your age by raising your hand, I totally get that. An article was written to a local newspaper asking for advice, and here was the question. Which is preferable for a child's upbringing? A lack of worldness, worldliness, but better sensitivity toward others and sincere and simple thoughts, or worldliness, possessions, and its present-day habit of knowing the price of everything and the true value of nothing. If our main interest is in material things, we will think in terms of price rather than value. How much is it going to cost? We will think in terms of what money can get instead of what God wants to teach. This past week as I was reading through this passage and thinking through this message, I began to think, what is it as a parent that I am teaching my kids? Not only am I saying, but what are they seeing? Do we teach them more about things and cost or about the value of things that have no price tag? I've seen this line of thinking and processing is carrying over to teenagers and adults of how much is Jesus going to cost me? How much am I going to have to pay rather than focusing on the value of what it is we get? Now think about Solomon being the wisest and wealthiest man. Had some pretty strong, insightful conclusions. Listen to some of these verses. Anything I wanted, I would take, he said. I deny myself no pleasure. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was also meaningless, like chasing the wind. And I love this verse. And while seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. And then he sums it up best in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Meaning this. All of life is meaningless, hollow, and fruitless if it is not rightly related to God. Now, in verse 25, Jesus makes this illustrative statement. 
and said it was easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, camels were a curiosity to the Israelites. Uh, they weren't uh, used by farmers. The donkey was their animal of choice. But camels were used by traders whose caravans would travel through Galilee on their way to Jerusalem and trading centers of Egypt. Now, when we were in Israel, um, some people on our tour got on top of a camel and rode a camel. I've been on top of a camel. They are ugly animals, and they like to spit. But when you're up there, you are high, sort of feel somewhat powerful. And the cool thing about camels is that they can hold a bunch of stuff on them and walk for a long time without water. And Jesus was using this illustration with his disciples And I think he likes to use illustrations like this because whenever they see a camel again, they're going to go back to this teaching. And so he uses this camel eye of the needle metaphor. The camel was the largest animal that was regularly seen in Palestine. In contrast, the eye of a sewing needle was a tiny opening. If you've ever tried to thread a needle through, uh, through the eye of a needle, you know how difficult that can be. Lick it and spin it. <laughs> Jesus is saying and showing this vast contrast. Huge, big camel. Little tiny needle. The point of Jesus' speech is the impossibility of it. We know this because he uses the word impossibility in verse 27. Looking at them, Jesus says, with people, it, salvation, is impossible. Now, for hundreds of years, there's been various explanations floating around to soften Jesus' teaching about this impossibility to some kind of, you can do it if you really try approach. And one of the things, one of the false explanations, maybe you have even heard, is that there's a gate through the wall of Jerusalem called the needle's eye, so small that a loaded camel couldn't get through it unless you were to be unloaded and kneel down. And I think this started with probably preachers or tour guides to make a a visual point, to make it connect somehow. But it falsely communicates spiritually. It distorts the idea that Jesus is saying it is impossible. It doesn't matter how much you take off, how well you can bend down. It is impossible with man to have salvation. And just as a side note, researchers find nothing that provides any support to the gate in the wall theory. Jesus summarizes salvation and says, If, he says, salvation depended on a person's own effort, it is impossible. But, with God, salvation is possible. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, It is by grace that we've been saved. A free gift of God. So none of us can boast about what we have or what we can do. Verse 25, one commentator said, should be accepted for what it is. It is an overstatement designed to claim for rich people what 27 claims for all people. 
The rich simply cannot enter God's kingdom, nor can anyone else, not until God does what only God can do through Jesus. And so the reaction of the disciples was that if what Jesus is saying was true, to be saved at all, it was virtually impossible through works or riches. Those who trust in themselves and their possessions can never be saved. Only those who trust and are solely dependent on the saving power and redeeming love of God through Jesus can enter freely into salvation. At every point, beginning, middle, end, man is completely dependent on God for salvation. That's why John 3, verses 3 and 5 say, You must be born again from above. And when Peter sees this and hears this, he asks a question, verses 28 through 31. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Peter, often the spokesperson for the group, is thinking, if this guy's not getting in, we've left everything, so what do we get? What about us, Jesus? What about us? We've left everything to follow you. What is he really asking? So what do we get as a result of leaving it all and following you? Have you ever thought about that for your own life? Jesus, what's, what's this really mean? What does it really mean? I've left everything to follow. What, what should I expect? Now, I don't think Peter is asking this question from a place of greed, of selfishness. Peter had just heard Jesus talk to the rich young ruler about treasures in heaven. And I think Peter's really asking, if the rich young ruler can exchange all this fabulous wealth and position for a treasure in heaven that allows him to inherit eternal life, what will we receive since we've given up everything, but not nearly as much, to follow you? One author says that Peter may still have owned a boat that he rented out to other fishermen. His wife probably still lives in the family home in Capernaum. And we do not see Peter permanently distribute all his money to the poor. But Peter and his friends do give up everything they have of value to follow. The comfort of their homes, the wives, the children, their status in community, a place to sleep at night, relative security compared to the death threats of Jesus' growing list of enemies. And so Jesus answers Peter simply and fully. He promises them a hundredfold return on their investment. Now listen to this first century parallel of what Peter felt like he was giving up, Jesus addresses and what he promises. From verse 29 and 30, house is not just where somebody lives, it was a house, it was where you belonged. Brothers and sisters represent not merely siblings, but my people to whom I belong. A mother and father 
stand not merely as parents, but my connection, my ancestor. They represent who I am. Children stand for more than merely those who I give birth to. They count as evidence of God's blessing. They are my security. Farms, they represent God's promises. They represent visible inheritance. Now watch this application. Watch what the exchange life of Jesus provides. When things are given up for Jesus' sake, the disciple, the follower of Christ, is promised a new place to belong. New people to whom they belong to. A new identity independent of physical ancestry. New guarantees of God sustaining security and a final inheritance in heaven. That's what Jesus was promising. This, This is not about some kind of stock market thing. I'm going to invest this so I can get a great return on my investment deal. Following Jesus is about having our real needs, our deepest needs, met in ways that are ultimately far more secure than any physical conditions could ever be. And note in verse 30, along with that, there will be persecutions. Psalm 23 is probably the most famous psalm. Most of us can quote it, and it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Meaning, He is the great provider. It's a great promise. Praise God. But also in Psalm 23 is this verse, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Praise God. This is also a promise by God of hard times. The blessings of Jesus will be sufficient in times of persecution, a promise that wealth and possessions cannot give. Jesus ends in verse 31 with a kind of a contradictory statement about first and last. He's wanting his disciples to be first in the kingdom through humility, not first in the world through possessions. And he guarantees no matter what, this journey that you are on following Jesus will be like his journey that he's headed to right now, a journey to the cross. That's the that's the thing he wants his disciples to walk away with with people it is impossible but with god for all things are possible with god so let me ask some questions this morning where would you say your treasure is now some of us in here would go my treasure's in heaven so spiritual this morning all my life is about jesus ask your wife Ask your husband, ask your kids, ask your co-workers. Where would you say your treasure is? What are you really pursuing? Where is your time really spent? Where is your energy really given? Is there anything that you are pursuing more or other than Jesus? Why do you work? Why do you want possessions and money? It's a check of the heart. Y'all seen this before, but I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And let me say this. People are not in heaven because they're good. One of the hardest things, this is off script, but one of the hardest things for me to do is go to a funeral where somebody stands up and says, They were such a good guy. They were such a good girl, and they're going to be in heaven without any reference to Jesus. And the reality of that 
Because that's a lie. Just as a hearse can't pull all our possessions into heaven, neither can our good works get us there. It's impossible, Jesus says. But with God, all things are possible. Where are you and I finding our security of salvation and purpose? And where are our friends and family finding it? The second question is this. Has a pursuit of the things of this world caused us to focus on the here and now and lose our eternal perspective on the kingdom of God? 2 Corinthians 4.18 is a great reminder verse for me. While looking not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary. It's temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. How much time do you and I think about investing in eternity? And how does it compare with investing in the here and now? The third question I want to leave us with is this. Are you and I willing to give up everything in order to gain everything in Christ? The only way, one author said, that you and I can give up everything we have is when we realize that everything we have does not begin to compare to everything God wants to give. Is Christ alone our most prized possession? Think about if Jesus were to ask you, would you sell it all? Would you sell it all so you could possess Christ? This morning, Seth and the team's going to come. They're going to play. We're going to sing. And this morning, I'm, I'm going to do something I normally don't do. In fact, it may be the first time I've ever done it. So it may go really bad. <laughs> but that's okay. I want to ask you two questions. Once the praise team gets up here, I want to ask you two questions. I want to ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. Nobody looking around. The first question is this. Do you know for certain that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that you've trusted him and accepted his work on the cross for your sins and forgiveness, securing your place in heaven? If you know for certain, would you raise your hand? Thank you. 1 John 5, 13. I have written these things that you might know, that you might know you have eternal life. So it leads to the second question with our heads still bowed and eyes closed. If you're here this morning and you do not know for sure that you're going to heaven, that Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, that you've not placed your trust in him and his work on the cross for salvation, would you raise your hand? This is not for me. This is a line in the sand for you and God. And I ask because I want us to be clear about Jesus' words. With people 
it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. But salvation has been made possible through Jesus. And like the rich young ruler in this story, he invites all of us to follow him with joy and abandonment. If you raised your hand not knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, can I ask you what it is that's holding you back from doing so? After the service, if you'd like to talk more about it with me, one of the elders, one of the staff, Steve, Seth. Jesus said this, salvation is possible for you this morning. God, thanks for this passage. Thanks for this interaction with you, this rich young ruler. God, I thank you for the confidence that we have in your promises that with you salvation is possible through the work of Jesus. And the promise is also true that without you it is impossible. So God, help us, we pray, to follow you with full abandonment, with a pure perspective, with great joy, through persecution, trials through hard times help us stay with you in Jesus name amen as you can tell from the table this morning set before